Hello, Princess. You can call me Dot. Here, you forgot this. Thanks. You can keep it. I can make another one. I like your invention. Really? Well, you're the first. I'm beginning to think nothing I do works. This works? Great. One success. I'm never gonna make a difference. Me neither. I'm a royal ant and I can't even fly yet. I'm too little. Oh, being little's not such a bad thing. Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's too. Is not. Is not. Is not. Is not. Is not. Oh. A seat. I need. I need a seat. Uh. <laughs> Pretend, pretend that that's a seed. It's a rock. Oh, I know it's a rock. I know, but let's just pretend for a minute that it's a seed, all right? We'll just use our imaginations. Now, now, do you see our tree? Everything that made that giant tree is already contained inside this tiny little seed. All it needs is some time, a little bit of sunshine and rain, and voila! This rock will be a tree. Seed to tree. You've got to work with me here, all right? Okay. Like, you might not feel like you can do much now, but that's just because, well, you're not a tree yet. You just have to give yourself some time. You're still a seed. But it's a rock. I know it's a rock! Don't you think I know a rock when I see a rock? I've spent a lot of time around rocks! You're weird, but I like you. <laughs> Jesus was known to use an object lesson a time or two. We often call them parables these earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And they'd often incorporate common household items that Jesus' listeners were familiar with. Things like they would find in their gardens or things that they would find in their pantries and so on. Right before our passage this morning, Jesus has actually given two object lessons to describe the same thing, which is the kingdom of God. Jesus told those listening Let's use our imaginations and just pretend for a minute that God's kingdom is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. And he told his listeners all the contents of the mustard plant is already in and contained inside that tiny little seed, right? And all it needs is just a little time, a little bit of sunshine and rain, and voila. That even the smallest of seeds, when they fully manifest, when they're fully grown, when they're fully mature, they transform and become trees, or at least Jesus is being a little hyperbolic there, as preachers are known to do. But you get the point. That even a tiny little seed has the potential to be something huge, something towering. That even birds build the nest inside. And he said, so it is with the kingdom of God. Jesus then offers another object right after that one. That drives the point home even further. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a, like a woman that adds to her dough just a little bit of yeast. And even that small amount of yeast has the potential with enough time and with enough heat to ferment and cause the whole loaf to rise. Every baker knows this. All that power is packed inside that tiny little bit of yeast. And Jesus said, so it is with the kingdom of God. What Jesus was trying to illustrate in both of these object lessons, I think, is that God's kingdom has small beginnings, 
but they eventually translate into something with momentous growth. Like a tiny little mustard seed one day becomes a huge plant or a little yeast leavens the whole lump. Jesus says to think of the kingdom of God just like that, just like that object lesson. That the kingdom of God has invaded this world with the arrival of Jesus and through the present realization of the kingdom, it may seem small and insignificant, especially compared to the kingdoms of this world. All the ingredients are present and it's slowly starting to rise. It's taking root. It's germinating and its power is slowly going to manifest itself in this world and particularly inside those that follow Jesus. That with enough time, the kingdom will one day be fully realized. And on that day, God's kingdom will be immeasurable, Jesus says. Larger than anything you can imagine when you look at that tiny little seed, that, that little bit of yeast. It just doesn't look like it at a present moment. What appears as tiny and as significant has the potential to become a kingdom. You just don't feel it now, Jesus said. You just, it's not a tree yet. Just give it a little more time. It just looks like a seed, and whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. But two things tend to happen when Jesus gives an object lesson. Either folks don't always understand what Jesus' lesson is. It goes, sails right over their head. But it's a rock. I love that scene from Bug's Life. But it's a rock. But sometimes folks have a follow-up question. And that's what I think this guy is doing this morning. He has a follow-up question to that. He says, Lord, will only a few be saved? Because if you're saying the inception of the kingdom is tiny, will the eventual membership of the kingdom be tiny as well? If the beginnings are so small and the result is so great, will many be saved or just a few? It's not a bad question to ask Jesus. Well, in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer the question head on. Instead, he tends to offer another parable. He gives another object lesson, this time involving a door. I think Jesus hopes we know what a door is. He compares the entrance to the kingdom, he says, to this door that is both narrow in frame and is only open for a narrow window of time. Matthew gives the same thing in his own gospel at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many through it will enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now to just cut right to the chase, I'm going to take a crack at what I think Jesus is trying to say. And I think it can be really under, simply to understand, if not a little bit alarming. And I'm going to do my best to take the fangs out of it just a little bit for you guys. But if I do it too much, it's going to lose its bite. And I think that's, we risk run, ruining what the text is trying to say. But I'm going to try my best, so just hang with me. I think Jesus is saying that the invitation to the kingdom of God is open right now to anybody. But the surprise in his reply is not that access is limited to just a few it's actually who makes it in because Jesus says the way into the kingdom is so narrow and demands much more than just casual interest in it and the twist is that those who think they've made it inside in the end won't that those everyone thought would be first in line in the kingdom actually find themselves in the back of the line and vice versa 
Because I think Jesus is saying that the window of opportunity to even attempt to make it into the kingdom, it's going to close, and it's closing, that the door into the kingdom will not be open forever. Eventually, it will close, presumably by Jesus itself, at the end of time, the consummation of all things. That's sooner than you might think. And when the master of the door has locked the door, right, it's too late. The door has been closed. And like the maidens who didn't have enough oil with them when they missed out on when the bridegroom showed up, many on that day will be stunned and surprised that they're locked out, unable to get inside, on the outside looking in, and they'll be banging on that door, pleading their case while they think they've been unjustly disqualified from admittance. But not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven, again from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus draws this line in the sand he says the door won't be reopened for people whose only claim to him is that he once visited them in their town or heard one of his sermons or they saw him in a crowd one day or they were born into a godly family. Jesus says, no, 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 proximity and mere exposure doesn't cut it. That these people do not know Jesus or better yet, Jesus doesn't know them. Because apparently that's the key for Jesus here. I don't know you or where you come from. He says it twice in this passage. Jesus doesn't know them because they never made an effort to get to know him when they had a chance. So the remarks, I think, is the smoking gun in this story. They're self-incriminating because they had the opportunities to know Jesus. It's not like Jesus wasn't around. They had a chance to build a relationship with Jesus, with the bridegroom, with the king, while there was time because he shared meals with them. He was in their churches. He was in their streets. Yet many failed to realize these moments when Jesus, they carried obligations, as scholar Fred Craddock points out. They forfeited these moments. They took them for granted, and they didn't realize that too much is given, much is required. And to add insult to injury, they're sitting now on the outside of the closed door, and they will see the large numbers who are admitted, not only the expected ones that you'd think would be there, like Israel's faithful ancestors, but also the unexpected, the Gentiles who heard and believed. I could have probably just read to you Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation, because I think he sums it up really well. I'm going to read what he put, because I think it's great. He says, many are going to assume they'll sit down to God's salvation banquet just because they've been hanging around the neighborhood all their lives. Well, one day, those same people are going to be banging on the door, wanting to get in, but find the door locked, and the master saying, sorry, you're not on the guest list. And they'll protest, but we've known you all our lives, only to be interrupted with this abrupt, your kind of knowing can hardly be called knowing. You don't even know the first thing about me. And then they'll find themselves out in the cold, strangers to grace, and they'll watch Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets march into God's kingdom, and they'll watch outsiders stream in from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down at the table of God's kingdom. And all the time they'll be outside looking in and wondering what happened. And this is the great reversal. The last in line put at the head of the line in the so-called first ending up last. Jesus' reply makes it clear that exposure is not knowledge, Eugene Peterson writes. That something more than presence is required in knowing Jesus. Outward contact with Jesus means nothing. Inward reception is everything. And there's no bargaining with Jesus here. So in the end, I think Jesus turns the question around on the guy who's asking it. He was asking, will the saved be few? I think Jesus is actually asking, will the saved be you? 
Many will be saved, but that, will that include you? And one's ultimate destiny is determined whether or not Jesus says in the end that he knows you. And so my question is, does he? Does Jesus know you? <laughs> I'm trying not to make this scary because this passage is kind of scary, isn't it? Because the tricky part is that Jesus doesn't tell the guy how he can one day know him. <laughs> At least he doesn't say it explicitly. He kind of just leaves the guy hanging, almost as if Jesus expects the guy to figure out on his own how to know him. But I got to thinking, maybe Jesus has given us a clue to know him, or better yet, for Jesus to know us. And it's in the first thing that he said to the guy, what Jesus says in Matthew as well. He says, Enter through that narrow gate. Perhaps the first thing Jesus said is the most important thing Jesus wants this guy to walk away with. Luke says it this way, work hard to enter through the narrow gate to God's kingdom. Now you're tempted to fixate on the end of what Jesus is going to say that rare, but don't read this in reverse order. Don't get stuck on the end of that sentence, which is many will try to enter but fail, because we've been conditioned right by some preachers to be skittish of this passage. But don't let the back half scare you from the front half. Concentrate on the front half with me just for a second. Jesus says, work hard to enter through the narrow gate to God's kingdom. Other translations say, make every effort. Other translations say, strive to enter. And what they're all trying to do is capture this ancient athletic term that I think you understand if you've ever watched a sporting event before. The Greek word is agonizomai. Now, I had a preaching professor in seminary told me never to mention Greek words in a sermon because when you do, it sounds like you're being pretentious and patronizing. But if there is an English word in it and that you can hear, you can give that word. Tell me you've never heard a preacher use a Greek word and felt, wow, that was a little kind of patronizing. It's okay. You can laugh at that one. But there's a Greek word in this one or an English word in this Greek word I think you can hear. Can you almost hear the word and agonizomai, the word agonize. Can you hear it in there? Even if you can see it on there, you almost can see it. It is kind of close to what this word means. Agonizomai means that we strive or we fight or we struggle. And the ancient Greeks used this word when they would go to the stadiums or the arenas and they would watch the athletes compete. The same way you and I do when we tune in to watch the Cornhuskers. Nothing. Okay, I'm never going to do it again. I'm trying. I'm trying, friends. I'm trying. Uh, the Greeks witnessed these athletes as they were striving, as they were fighting, as they were agonizing, right, to be stronger or better than their opponents. They wanted to achieve something. They wanted to win. And so whether it was the runners who would enter into the competition, right, and they would struggle or they would agonizomai to cross the finish line, I have agonizomai, the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Second Timothy, same word there Paul uses. They would watch these boxers who'd enter into the arena and they had to fight or they had to agonizomai until their opponent hit the mat. They would watch the gymnasts who would enter onto the floor for their routines and they would contend or they would agonizomai to win a gold medal. <laughs> How about this one? You guys are going to love this one. How about a little, a little pesky football team? that maybe everyone thought was cooked at Christmas time. And they had to defy the odds, and they had to go fight through adversity, agonizomai against the hardest playoff route, and they still won the Super Bowl. Jesus uses that same athletic determination and grit 
and struggle to speak about what it means for someone to enter through the narrow gate and get into his kingdom. That he's saying discipleship, this narrow door, it demands more than just casual interest. Jesus makes it clear that exposure is not the same thing as knowledge. You can know a lot about Jesus, but it's not the same thing as knowing him. Outward contact with Jesus means nothing, and you'd say the same thing. But the relationships you have with people in your life, the people that are closest to you, right, your spouse, your friends, allies, if not family, are not people that you have a relationship with at a distance, right? They they're, they're have contact with you. People that are at a distance from you are acquaintances or better yet, strangers. The people that are closest to you, you've had to work at that relationship. Work to know them and they had to work to know you and it took time and effort, if not striving, to cultivate that relationship. The same thing, Jesus says, applies to him. In other words, you can't know Jesus and enter through the narrow gate by osmosis, by absorption. It's not going to happen without your participation on your part, and someone or something can't do it for you. You're not automatically in just because of the circumstances of how you were born or the household that you were raised in, your attendance record at church, the amount of the Bible you've read, or just being a good person. These are all admirable qualities, and some of them tee you up, and some of them are a means of grace to help you in the journey to know God, but they're not a guarantee that you're going to know God because you can lead a horse to water, but it's still got a drink. What Jesus is saying, friends, walk through the narrow door is going to be hard work. It's not just going to magically happen that discipleship takes fervor and striving and a concerted effort. It's, it's it got to be routine. It's got to be effortless. It's got to be a second nature almost, or theologically we may say a new nature. But practice makes perfect. I'm not a coach, so maybe a coach would say it better than I would if they use this term. But it's not going to be easy, especially at first. It's going to sound and look and feel different than how everybody else is going to operate, but it's supposed to. What I think Jesus is saying is that many will be saved, and many who think they will be saved won't. And the reason why is you can be religious but still miss wide right. I pointed left, but I should have gone that way. Jesus says you can be interested in him. You can attend a community that bears his name. You can even be employed by something that bears his name. The Sermon on the Mount will say you can even prophesy in his name, drive out demons in his name, and even perform many miracles in his name, yet still make decisions and choices like everybody else in this world. You can still be characterized and recognized not as someone Jesus knows, but in the majority of people who are on the road that leads to destruction. Again, I'm sorry, I'm trying to take the fangs out, but sometimes we need to let Jesus say hard things to us. So I want to call you today to be narrow-minded. Not being closed-minded, like the traditional word means. I'm not being stubborn or small-minded. I'm going to tweak the word just a little bit. I want you to be narrow-minded. I think for Jesus, that means you make a concerted effort and a singular goal to get through that narrow gate every single moment of your life. Scott McKnight, in his translation of this same passage, he has Jesus say, be a contestant to enter through the narrow gate. I love that translation. 
Get in the game and start doing things that move you towards the goalpost. And I don't think this is a one-time decision. I don't think this is, I prayed the prayer, so I'm good, or I got baptized, so I'm good, or I made a decision for Christ many years ago, so I'm good. This is a multiple daily lifetime decision. It's rhythm and routine. It's habits. It's a lifestyle of following Jesus through the narrow gate. And what if every day we are presented with decisions and choices, windows of opportunity, chances to either walk through the narrow gate or we are going to be like everybody else with our words and our actions and our behavior and walk through the wide gate. There is a moment that's going to come up and it's going to be agonizamized. Because it goes contrary to our sin nature that still remains in us, that'll one day be purged. But until then, we are going to strive every day to be narrow-minded people. Because that's what Jesus calls us to do if we're going to follow him. One of my favorite movie lines comes from the movie from 1992 called A League of Their Own. Has anyone ever seen this movie, League of Their Own? It's a great movie. It's one of my mom's favorite movies, so she'd always have it on. It's about a professional woman's baseball team during World War II. And one of my favorite scenes from the movie is when Dottie, one of the ball players, she wants to quit right before the World Series. And she's confronted by her coach, who's played by Tom Hanks. I love Tom Hanks movies, so whenever Tom Hanks is in the movie, I'm probably going to watch it. And she confronts, and he confronts her for sneaking out and for quitting And he says it's going to be something that she's going to regret for the rest of her life because that's what he did. And he tells her, he describes, he says, I can see that baseball, it gets into you and it lights you up and it gives you life. Why would you walk away from that? And Toddy, she responds and she just says, it just got too hard. This is when her coach, being great, Tom Hanks says it better than I can, but he says, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. But the hard is what makes it great. Mm, That's a good line. I want to tell you today, friends, that the hard is what makes it great when it comes to being narrow-minded. I think the same could be said about being narrow-minded. To quote the message again, the way to life, to God, is vigorous, and it's going to require your total attention. Focusing on knowing Jesus and Jesus knowing you. Discipleship is going to be hard, but the hard is what makes it great and it's what makes it life-giving at the same time. It'll feel like you're dying because you are dying. You're taking up your cross and dying to self. But at the same time, it's the only passage to get to resurrection and new life and new creation. That's on the other side. And so during this Lenten season, we've talked about a couple of things, haven't we? A couple weeks ago, we talked about maybe there are things that we need to abstain from, things we need to remove from ourselves that we need to give up, something that's costly to us, that's inhibiting our connection to God, maybe these rhythms and routines, we need to get rid of them so it can be a means of grace to help us connect with God. Last week, we talked about the theme in Lent being discipleship, of reviewing and reevaluating and grading whether Jesus and following Jesus is a top priority in our life, whether Jesus takes a back seat to anything, and we're working with God to process, right, our hierarchy of loves. We talked about that last week. This week, I want to propose, in the midst of both of those things, as we are facing Jerusalem in the sermon series, as we are walking with Jesus towards the cross in Lent, to incorporate both of those, but I invite you to do something different. What do you need to pick up that draws you closer to God? Think 
narrow-mindedly about that, if I can put it that way. This is not trying to earn your salvation. This is having your faith be expressed through actions. Faith without works is dead, James famously said. This is you examining your life and the circles you swim in and the responsibilities you have and the person you're becoming. Are you narrow-mindedly aiming for the door? Are there things in your life that you need to pick up so you don't wander down that wide door? Maybe, again, you need to let those things go. But is there something that you need to incorporate in your life that would be narrow-minded, that would keep you on that compass bearing towards Christ? I want you to know this morning that there are many of you that are already doing this. I always get tired of preachers saying that no one's claiming, making big claims and as if no one's doing this. A lot of you are doing this right now, and I want you to know that I see that, and I want to encourage you to keep going and to don't stop because you doing that inspires me to do that. That's what the church is, that we all come in and we inspire one another and edify one another and encourage one another to keep striving, to keep working, to keep practicing to go through that narrow door Know that what you're doing is inspiring people. Keep it up. Keep doing that. It's not too late to strive for the narrow door, friends. It's not too late. That's the good news this morning, that the seed is still germinating and the yeast is baking in the oven and the door has not been closed. But it inevitably will. As scholar Alan Culpepper says, strive. Therefore, as one who dares not to presume on God's grace, strive as though admission to the kingdom depended entirely on your own doing, but know that ultimately it depends on God's grace. I want to end with these words from the preacher of Hebrews. May it edify you. Let us strive and strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us as we do this, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who has ever heard a child who has never been disciplined by his father? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always for us, always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable, why? is happening it is painful but afterwards there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in its ways